From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, home of the Super Bowl champion Indianapolis Colts, this is The Spiel, episode 23, Tony Danza and Company. So hello there, welcome to The Spiel. My name is Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. And uh, I'm back fresh from uh, Miami. And yeah, baby. Celebrating our glorious victory in the Super Bowl. Sorry, Chicago Bears fans, but you'll have your day. <laughs> it's been a little over a week. Are you dried out yet? <laughs> I'm starting to get dried out. It was it was the best five-hour shower I'll ever have in my life. It was cool. It was awesome, excellent experience. Got uh, I've got pictures. If anybody cares, I can I can send those pictures on, or I can post a few of them online. If anybody cares about that sort of thing, <laughs> but but it was a excellent experience. Would highly recommend it if anybody's a big football fan. It's it's especially it was, when your team wins. It's you can't complain about that. Can't get any better than that. The rain's <laughs> a lot easier to deal with. Heck yeah. <laughs> so I think we've got a good show on tap. Uh, Definitely. All kind of all over the map again, like our our normal. <laughs> Normal boss? game no. choices. Um, we're doing uh, I'm the boss, not who's the boss, <laughs> and Bizarro and Company for the for the list. And we've got some some cool older games in the back shelf spotlight, and and uh, all that in a bag of rocks coming in uh, truckloads of goober. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, let's just jump right in. Game news and notes. So welcome to News and Notes, everybody. I've got, I found out some cool information. Um, there was an old beer and pretzels card game that I've played forever called Rage. Um, it's been out of print for a while, and it's coming back in print. That's if, excellent. If anybody's familiar with this, it was actually based on an old game from the 1930s called Oh Hell. Mm-hmm. Um, they just did a few tweaks on it and everything. The, I think the original English version of Rage came out by International Games sometime in the 80s, and then there was a German version by Amigo like around 2000. So this new version um, that's expected out in March is actually being put out by Fundex Games, which is a local Indianapolis yeah. game company. So that's really cool. Um, Rage is for three to eight players, 10 and up, list for seven bucks, so you're going to be able to get this for like six, five or six dollars. And as far as I'm concerned, best five or six dollars you can spend. Oh, yeah. I just really like this game. It's a Trump style game. I believe that um, there are six suits. The cards are numbered 0 through 15. And the object is, before each hand, is for you to predict the number of tricks that you're going to take. And you have to take exactly that number of tricks. If you're over or under, there's penalties. But the craziness is (laughs) that Trump, every hand starts off with a trump but right in the middle of a, right in the middle of a hand actually right in the middle of a trick trump <laughs> can change immediately and it's just predicting the tricks you think you're going to take impossible 
Yeah. But that's what makes it just so zany and fun. Maddening and yet yeah. fun at yeah, the same ex- time. <laughs> exactly. So I'm really looking forward to an English version of this being back in print, mm-hmm. especially at that price range. And I yeah. think if, if this is a game you haven't played, give it give it a run in the beer, beer and pretzels family. You know, mm-hmm. it's not any high strategy. We're, but, we're hoping, too, that we've been in talks with the fine folks at Fundex Games since they're Indianapolis-based here, that they're wanting to maybe give us some uh, free games to, as giveaways here on the show. So I'm hoping maybe we can score a... A case of rage to, yeah, that to would be... hand out to some some lucky listeners because it's definitely a, a really nice light party style Trump game that that would fit well on anybody's shelf. I think. Yeah, I've played this with numerous number of people and haven't really played with anybody who has who has disliked it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been playing it for twenty five years probably. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely so, a classic. Great game. Look up. I believe, like I said, in March should be about six bucks. Cool. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm all over the map here again. <laughs> Not quite as rapid fire as last time, but I've just got a couple, uh, int- uh, what do I want to call them? Items of note, cool. let's say. So the first one is there's a new game group that's forming in Perth, Australia. Um, listener Adrian, our Sabudio buddy, if you remember him, he's the one who brought Sabudio to our attention. He's forming a game group as part of the Euro Games Fest community. Um, Euro Games Fest is a network of game groups across Australia, including Albury, Brisbane, Canberra, Melbourne, Sydney, and now Perth. They gather at least once a month to play board games and introduce newcomers to the wider world of game, much like we do here on the Spiel. Um, The Perth group will have their first meeting on March the 10th. So this is kind of an open-ended invitation to all you Aussie listeners out there to check in with the Perth group or whichever group's closest to you. Um, You can find more information on uh, this game group and all the other meetings that the other um, ones have at eurogamesfest.com, and you can find that link on our our website, which is thespiel.net. So that's item of note number one. Maybe we should just jump on a plane and head down under. Hey, first meeting, that'd be fine. I would. I think I'm all for that. (laughs) Heck yeah. Let's go. Um, So item of note number two is a really cool magazine article um, in Make Magazine, which is a fairly new-ish magazine. It's been around for about a year. Really cool, all kinds of sort of the builder culture, you know, all kinds of different uh, instructions on how to make things yourself from from technological Ah, things to to homemade things. But they had an article by James Ernest on uh, how to make uh, and design board games. Um, Thanks to listener David in North Carolina for sharing the article with me and bringing it to our attention. Um, In James Ernest's own unique style, he walks you through the basics of game design, including both the physical aspects of creating, like the mock-up, and the Mm -hmm. thought process of game design itself. I thought the most awesome quote was, he talks about sort of metaphorically about game design Uh and talking about... A game, a game design can be like a house made of doors or a road made of walls. <laughs> Get what he's saying? So the house Excellent. made of doors is you have to make different decisions and de- depending upon exactly. which door you're going through. And the road made of walls is you're heading in one direction, but there are these obstacles that make you have to go this way or that way, but you're still on that same road. He says, I think that the best quote is a combination of these two metaphors is the Quote, a good game is a road made out of doors. Bingo. <laughs> and that's really, you know, what you're shooting for in game design. But you can find, um, this article online if you go to the, it's makezine.com. 
com is the the website and there's a place where you can search through old issues and if you type in game design it'll actually bring up those two pages and you can read those two pages online without even having to subscribe to the magazine ah. i would very much encourage oh. you to to check that out i'll be doing that asap um next item of note is um if i say to you the Reseda cube has been found does that mean anything to you Big bucks, baby. <laughs> Unfortunately, it wasn't us who found it. Darn. But for those of you who don't know what the Reseda Cube is, um, it's part of this game called Perplex City, which is a sort of puzzle, mystery, uh, geocaching, real-life uh, treasure hunt type of game um, that was all based around trying to find this little artifact called the Reseda Cube and, and send it back to the citizens of Perplex City. And hot off the presses, I just got the email a couple hours ago. It'll be a few days old by the time this podcast get po- gets posted. But after two years of searching and puzzling, Andy Darley from Middlesex, England, found the cube buried in a field in Wakerley, Greatwood, near Stamford, North Northamptonshire. In England, (laughs) in the middle of a muddy field, he found the cube. Um, This means that season one of Perplex City is done, and good old Andy walks away with a hundred thousand pounds in prize money, which is pretty pretty awesome. Um, It also means, though, that season two of Perplex City is getting ready to start March first. They've got an all new puzzles cards, stories, and this real-life mystery to go along with it. The site, I think, is going to launch uh, by the end of this week, um, and the the puzzles and the cards will be available March 1st. Um, we have an email interview, and we're hoping to have an actual Skype interview with one of the creators of Perplexity, Daniel Hahn, um, sometime in the very near future, so that's something to look forward to. Um, but for those who might have been puzzling along with us on the Perplexity site, got to try for the next one because yeah, this one's uh, this one's over. <laughs> so it is possible in only just a few short years. I know the puzzles we solved didn't lead us a whole lot of anywhere. No, no, <laughs> but it was cool trying. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, we we didn't didn't quite get as far down the rabbit hole as, as yeah. some other people. But it's definitely worth the the journey um, to to try out. I think that whole concept is just it's just cool. Awesome. It's just so unique. and, yeah. and it, I can only it's only going to get better with right. time and the more kinds of games like this that are out there. So lastly, and I'll make this as quick as possible here since we're kind of going over on news and notes this week. Um, the new website is up and live and, and ready for action. Anybody who goes to thespiel.net will see a, a rather drastic change from the old website design. It's up. I, to my knowledge, it's working as well <laughs> as it, it can at this point. Obviously, if anybody finds any problems with it, absolutely let me know. Um, we've got the donation buttons are up and active now. We've actually gotten um, our first... Um, donation, which is awesome, by cool. a, a fellow named Ben in California. Thanks, Ben, for, awesome. for aiding the much. cause. The, the show will always be free, but you know bandwidth does cost, and if anybody wants to throw in a, a little buckage our way to help defray our costs in doing the spiel, we certainly appreciate it and, and, and hope you enjoy what we're doing here, but I encourage you to check out the new site, and there's all sorts of new interactive stuff there, so... Um, without going on and on about it, just check out the new site and let, let us know what you think and start posting comments left and right because we want to hear, hear from you. And center. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> the List. Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. 
Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. Okay, first off the list today is a great little game called Bizarro and Company. It was designed by Tom Lehman. It was co-published by Rio Grande and Hans Unglach in 2002. It's for three to six players, ages 12 and up, retails for about 28 bucks. You can find it for between 18 and 22. In Pizarro and Company, each player takes on the role of a king who is bidding to hire the services of the best and most daring explorers. You do this by offering them the money they need to finance their explorations. For each explorer hired, you can gain money, special actions, and maybe even enough victory points to win the game. Now we got the when did we play it's about about a week since we played this. Yeah. And we played it with its full complement, six players. And I I think this game is I've said it before on some on some other segments, I think it's a special kind of little game. It's a really cool auction game that I think is a step above most. Um first of all the game comes good. the game comes with two double sided game boards. The game boards basically have the pictures of the explorers and places for you to place your ships. What's unique about it is that each board has three explorers, so the opposite side has the same three explorers, but with a little different variation. So they may offer more victory points or different special abilities. With the two double-sided boards, there's like four possible combinations before you even start the game on how you want to set it up. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, game comes with a deck of Explorer cards. There's um, three decks, one for year one, year two, and year three, which I'll explain in a minute. A deck of gold cards. Gold cards range from uh, one bag of gold up to nine bags of gold. Um, everybody gets a complete set, one through nine, at the start of the game. And then, of course, there's these cool little wooden ship guys. Everybody <laughs> starts a game with six of those. Uh, the game is divided into three rounds, which represent years. Um, in the first year, each explorer will have three expeditions. Um, and then in the second year, two. And finally, in the third year, only one. I'll explain how goofy that is and why that's important in a minute. Uh, basically, at the very beginning of the game, you're going to go ahead and divide up the explorer cards by those years, shuffle them up, put them in a stack, and the, the first explorer card is going to be turned face up. That's the explorer that everybody is going to bid on. You're going to use your gold cards to actually bid on that explorer. If you're successful in winning that explorer, the other cool thing that, as an aside that I want to say about the bidding is that your gold cards are kept secret. Mm. So you don't have to show, you know, even if you only have a nine and a five in your hand, you can still bid three. Nobody really knows that you only have that nine and the five. That's important because there is no change. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if you were to win, with three gold, you would still have to cough up that five, you know, or the nine, depending upon which one. But if it was important enough for you to bid on that, you, right. could, you could do that to, to yeah, so get it. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. But anyway, so if you win it, then you get to place your little ship marker on the year one spot on the board next to the Explorer that was being, where his auction, you know, was working. The cool thing is you will immediately, some of them have abilities where you would immediately gain an advantage. Others have abilities that you would gain later, and almost all of them have a number of victory points and or gold pieces that you'll gain. And some of the things are, I think Christopher Columbus's special ability is the veto. 
So if somebody comes up in auction and you're like, oh, we can't auction him off right now, you can play your veto card having won that Christopher Columbus card earlier, and that will bump down the current Explorer back to the bottom of the list. Um, there's also a score multiplier. You can trade gold. You can get extra gold. You might have to also play face-up gold cards. There's some penalties out there for winning some of these, but they're balanced by a huge amount of victory points, which is pretty cool. Um, the other really, really cool thing in this game that took me a little while to wrap my brain around is, like I said, in the first year, each explorer is going to have three expeditions. If you do not bid on and win one of those in the first year, then you don't even have the option to bid on them in the second and third, third years. Yeah. So if I wanted Christopher Columbus, if I bid on him in one, if there was three of us, and all three of us got in on the first one, now when we come to year two, only two Christopher Columbus cards are going to come up. So if you know Stephen and I and Fred were in <laughs> it, only two out of the three of us are going to move on. Because once, once you put a ship out in the first year... You don't add ships in the second or third year. They just move from the first year to the second year and then from the second year on to the third year. So it's really cool. You have to pay attention very early in the game what you're going to bid on and what you're going to win because you can get hosed you're, very quickly. <laughs> yeah, your priorities, you better have some idea about what your priorities are in round one because if you don't, <laughs> you're going to pay the price in round two and round three. Exactly, and it goes by, the later rounds go by pretty darn quick then, because by that time, um, when an auction comes up, obviously not everybody's in on it. Mm -hmm. Just those two or three people, and they can get just cutthroat. <laughs> we had some auctions where, okay, two gold, 27. <laughs> what? <laughs> but it's, once you learn the game, it's a fairly quick little game, and I think that's what really makes it neat. An auction game of this quality in a small package and an easy-to-learn game is just really neat. I think we had a couple people that were new to the game yeah. uh, when we played, and it just went smooth, smooth as heck, and everybody loved it. Yeah, yeah. I I, I would agree with you. The thing that I thought was the most unique was the the strategizing about how you want to how you want to try to bid on the different explorers because there's what six different explorers right. and you could try to get to spread your net wide and get you know ships in but that's very difficult because if you bid too much uh you know on, on a single one you may not have enough gold left to even try to throw in because everybody else is going to have too much gold the other balance is that only certain ones of the explorers are going to give you extra gold back, right. which allows you to kind of reload. You're always in, in between rounds. You're going to get a certain a couple, amount right. back. But by having the special abilities on certain ones, you're going to get extra gold, which, of course, gives you more power to continue to bid on the auctions that you're still going to be in on in rounds two and rounds three. But those tend to be the more hotly contested ones, so exactly. you end up having to, to spend more of your resources to even get in on that. So there's a really nice, I think, strategy and balance in, well, do I go after a lot? Do I try to get in on a lot of them, or do I just focus on these two and make sure that I'm definitely going to try to get through to the end um, one. I think the one thing maybe that you didn't stress is that let's say you get in on round one, but then you get outbid on round two or round three, you're still going to get the points for where your ship was right. on that first round. It's not a race to the end to like the, exactly. the three stations on each of the kind of little 
explorers and there's definitely an advantage to getting to that third one because those tend to be the the, the most victory points the, or, you know big kahuna right of the of the victory and points if or you whatever. get unlucky you get in on the first year on two or three different guys but for some reason get hosed out on the second year you could be left with absolutely nothing to do in the third year if you got outbid on all those, yeah, and it's it's tough. <laughs> I know that you you immediately went for uh, well, not immediately, but you're the one that first settled for Captain Cook, yes, and his painful ability, which forces you to play with all of your gold face up. But he has, I think, in the third year, twenty victory points. 20, yeah, twenty victory points, which is pretty <laughs> huge in this game. So that that's one. I thought that was kind of neat, an ability that nobody really wants, but at some point in time, you have to go. You know what? This is the one I'm going to have to take, even though I get I have to show everybody my gold. I'm just going to have to do it. <laughs> right, um, and each one of the explorers has kind of a nice strategy around that, to where you could say, "Well, this time we're going to play through. I'm going to go after Captain Cook and see how the game works out." Right, and because the game's so fast, you could say, "Well, okay, I'll wait, and if I got my butt kicked in that, let's try it the next time, and I'll focus on Christopher Columbus." So there's kind of a nice combo figuring out the combos that you know oh captain cook and christopher columbus are a really good combination if i can get on on those two and that just lends to replayability i guess right. is what i'm saying um and i like the interaction especially in the first round i mean you can be in every single auction if you want mm -hmm. you know you're not just sitting there twiddling your thumbs because you know you blew all your money there's enough money set up from the get-go that for the first handful of rounds you're in everything everybody's like oh, i'll bid one two most of the time, you get put out rather quickly. Yeah, but a lot of player interaction. Remind me, do you if you lose the auction, you do you don't lose no, your you money? You get to keep your money. You get to keep your money. Yeah. So only the person who wins. Only the, the winner has to fork off the cash. So, yeah, that would make it more painful if you had to lose. Oh, yeah. If you lost oh. your money and you lost yeah, the auction, be that would a little be... cutthroat auction there. No, <laughs> I just couldn't remember that little detail. But to me, I also think the the fact that usually you'd think it was kind of a detriment to the game that by the second or third round. Not everybody's in on every auction, but I actually think it's a strength in this case because the rounds go so quickly. Right. Um, that there's kind of the game is sort of shaped like a funnel. That there the conflicts get narrower and narrower right. to the point where you're only going to be head to head with one or two people by the the final even, round. Even when you're not in an auction, you still it's still important to you because let's say you and Jason were just hot and heavy in a bidding auction, I'm. I care about this auction because maybe Stephen is getting ready to bid against me. And mm -hmm. an upcoming thing, I'm like, please let Stephen win this for like crap loads of money so he has nothing left. <laughs> yeah. So I can just, you know, take him to task in the next one. Yeah, that's, so that's a you're great kind point. of really in everything even when you're not in the auction. So it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I would I would highly I'd I'd seek this one out. Um if you if you like auction style games, especially for for this much depth and for that speed of play. Right. I, I would give this one pretty high pretty high marks, I would say. So first off the list, Bizarro and Company. Great game. <laughs> so second on the list this week is not Mr. Tony Danza with Who's the Boss, but I'm the Boss. Uh, cool. <laughs> a great, uh, crazy-ass oh. game. Um, first published in 1994, then reprinted again in 2003. Uh, Sid Saxon, the venerable great game designer, is the... Is the um, creator of this one, Schmidt Spiele was the original publisher. Face to Face Games is the current publisher. Um, it's for three to six players. Plays in about an hour, um, and it costs between twenty-three to twenty-five dollars online. Um, easily uh, worth worth that Big time, time. If, if you like this style game. I think 
Um, so for a game with such a simple mechanic, I'm the boss creates loads of mayhem and fun. <laughs> I can't think of many games that create as much just no. complete chaos once the game starts than uh, I'm the boss. So in I'm the boss, there are going to be 16 deals that are laid out on a board. Players are going to compete to com- to complete as many deals as they can um, and to cash out for the most dough. However, in order to close the deals, you need to seek help from the other players in exchange for giving them a piece of the action. So in other words, the only way for you to benefit with the deal closing is for the other people to benefit as well, and that's really kind of the heart of what makes this game really fun, I think. Um, to make life a little more difficult, each player has a hand of action cards, which can be used to derail negotiations, uh, including you know stopping someone else from entering a deal or changing who's the boss in the middle of the deal. Uh, it just gets really crazy. It's zany. We'll get into that in a little more detail in just a second. After 10 deals have been made on the game, then a die is going to start to be rolled. If a 1 is rolled after 10 um, deals have been made, then the game ends. After the 11th deal, if a 1 or 2, 12th deal, 1, 2, or 3. So it becomes increasingly likely that the game ends once you've reached uh, 10 deals. When the game ends, the person with the most cashola is going to be the winner of the game. Um, Sid Saxon is worldwide famous for creating a myriad of brilliant games, and I'm the Boss, I think, is certainly one of his his best. Um, it was first published in German as Cola, Kies, and Kanetta um, by, about, by uh, Schmidt Spiele. Um, it's been out of print for a little while, but it's awesome that Face to Face has brought it back into print. Um, the new edition has um, some added features. I'm just going to talk about the the board and the components as well as, I guess there have been some rules tweaks and uh, sort of house rules that have been added to the ah. game as well because the game has been so popular and those have been incorporated into the current oh, okay. I'm the boss that you're going to get in the box, which I thought was just worth mentioning. Um, so let's get on to the components. You're going to get a game board, six investor cards, 98 influence cards, 15 deal tiles, a dollar marker, a die, and then, of course, cash. Um, the board is set up kind of like a typical board game board. It's got 16 deals, which are squares kind of around the perimeter of the board um, that are the deals that are waiting to be struck in the course of the game. Each deal has kind of three components on these squares. Uh, you've got two numbers at the top. The first number is the number of investors that you need to complete the deal. The second number is the number of dividends that the deal is going to pay out. And then the third um, thing is the uh, names of the investors that you need to complete uh, the deal um, in order to, to actually cash out on that particular deal. Um, the investor cards have um, different personalities that each person is going to get dealt out one of those at the beginning of the game. And they have kind of funny money money pun names like right. Carolyn Cashman, Stephanie Sachs, Deborah Dorady, <laughs> uh, George Goldman, Lance Liebgeld, and Will Wadsworth. So these, of all the deals, they're going to involve those six investors in some way, shape, or form. The mechanics of the game are just dead simple. You've got basically, when it's your turn, you've got one choice at the beginning of your turn, and that's are you going to make a deal on the space that you're on, or are you going to roll the die? If you uh, if you decide to make a deal, you say, let's make a deal, 
And then that starts, craziness the, that starts the craziness. <laughs> um, before we get to that, though, the other option is you roll the die. If you roll the die, then you move the little money marker to the other deal, and you have the choice again. Are you going to make that deal, or are you going to restock your hand by drawing three of the uh, investor cards and putting those in your hand? The investor cards are what's going to allow you to help weigh in on all the, the deal-making that's going to happen. So the whole game is basically built around the interactive craziness that's going to happen when the first person says, let's make a deal. So, of course, if you remember, there's a certain number of investors and a certain names of investors that are needed. So the person who says, let's make a deal, becomes the boss. And they're going to be the arbiter of trying to decide how this deal is going to go down and how many dividends each person in the deal is going to get. So let's say if the deal involved Stephanie Sachs and Carolyn Cashman, um, the person who has, let's say Dave has the Carolyn Cashman card, he can say, oh, I'm in. I've got Carolyn Cashman right here. Well, someone else in these investor cards, there, there are several different kinds of investor cards, but one of them are called clan cards. So you might have Carolyn Cashman's cousin. <laughs> so you can say, well, I'm, I've got Carolyn Cashman's cousin. She'd like to be in on this deal as well. So now you're offered two different choices. You could go with Dave who has his Carolyn Cashman or the cousin. Someone else might have her sister or her long-lost aunt. So you, you can see how you can end up with a lot of choices of who you want to include in the deal. Of course, also in these investment cards, you have cards like the travel cards, which allow you to say, oh, Carolyn Cashman's cousin, oh, she's taking a trip which basically negates her and boots her out of um, out of the deal. So you'd have to have yet another Cashman card in your hand to then try to get back into the, oh, I've got her brother now. <laughs> so maybe she can, you know, he can get in on the deal. Um, it's up to the boss to decide who's going to go in. And of course, there's wheeling and dealing. Dave might say, well, I have Carolyn Cashman, but I'll settle for only one of the dividends that's going to be paid out where the other person might be asking for two. In the end, it's up to the boss to decide how all these dividends are paid out, with the extra cool thing being that the person who's the boss doesn't even have to have an investor involved in the deal at all. He might not have Carolyn Cashman or Stephanie Sachs, but he's going to just, boss. because he's the boss, <laughs> he's going to get to cash in on part of the deal. But the people involved in the deal have to sign off on it as well. The boss can't just say, well, there are eight dividends, I'm going to give each of you two, and I'm going to take six. Because they could just say, well, forget it. I don't want to be exactly. part of this deal. So there is a risk when you say, let's make a deal, that the deal could not happen. It's it's very possible that that could happen um, when you start to do this. Of course, that's not to your advantage because then you're hosed out of getting money and you're not getting to refill your hands with these, these cool cards that are going to let you do the things. That's kind of the basic part of the, the deal making. The thing that makes it even crazier is there are cards called I'm the boss cards that you can throw in at any point. So someone, I might be on the cusp of making a deal with Dave and with Jason, and we've got it all worked out, and someone else says, well, forget that, I'm the boss now. <laughs> Immediately, that person becomes the boss of the deal, and you have to try to negotiate with that person to, to settle the deal. So the whole thing can just go up in a puff of smoke the minute that someone plays an I'm the boss card. There are stop cards that can allow you to prevent people from playing, and there are uh, recruitment cards that are played three at a time. You have to have three of them in your hand, and that allows you to take those permanent, those big investor cards that are laid out at the beginning in front of each person. And so you could end up with several of those. You might have Cashman and Sachs and Will Wadsworth all in front of you, so you don't even have to play 
the investor cards out of your hand in order to be considered part right. of part of the deal. It's uh, it's kind of wacky. I that's that's as good an overview as I can right. get because it just gets completely zany. A pit is probably the closest thing that I can think of. It's not at all like this game uh in in many respects, but the sort of wacky Oh, I want to be in with that and you got to make a deal with me. That that frenetic kind of deal making is definitely it captures the same essence right. of a game like Pit with, I think, more strategy involved and a lot more sort of wheeling and dealing and not just as straightforward as, as a two-person trade as as is in Pit. Uh, right. give, me, give me your thoughts. What do you think? I, th- I think this is the best game in this particular type of game. Um, it is just so fun and so crazy. The real-time frenetic insanity that happens on every turn is almost indescribable <laughs> i mean you would you look at every, the cards everybody has the amount of cards you're like okay well this should go pretty smooth and you cannot <laughs> believe the amount of investors that have to go on vacation the number of times that the boss changes in any one deal <laughs> and usually sometimes you'll land you'll decide to go ahead and start a deal and you won't have an investor but you're like well i can make some serious cash on this so you'll start the deal and then just like steven described before just when you think you have it worked out Somebody all of a sudden becomes the boss. They take the deal right out from underneath you. You didn't have any of the investors in the first place, so now you're totally screwed. <laughs> you know, so you're hoping you have an "I'm the boss" or a stop card. And a lot of times, you're even playing those even on deals you're not in because mm-hmm. it's in my best interest that Stephen it has no part of this deal. So I'll be like, um, "Okay, I'm the boss," just to keep Stephen out of the deal. No, right. one, no other purpose. You know, <laughs> it's just craziness, but. At the same time, it's one of the funnest games that you can play, period. I'm, I'm so glad that Face to Face brought this back yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, just for pure, any, any person, game player who likes player interaction, I mean, that's right. par excellence. That's what this game is all about, is trying to make these deals, uh, between the different people. And I love the fact that after each deal, there's almost that, that sort of moment of silence <laughs> where everybody's kind of like, <laughs> okay, exactly. now whose turn was it? You know, <laughs> you had the dust sort of settles and you look around like, oh yeah, I guess it was my turn. Let's go back to the game now because there's just this, that, that, the energy that's put into each one of those deals, I think is, is you, you get really so, the fun of the game. You get so excited about these <laughs> deals. It almost, um, it takes over. You know, the better, mm-hmm. your better part of judge, judgment is just thrown <laughs> to the wind because you just start playing cards. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, well this. Oh yeah, then I'm playing this. Well stop this. I'll do this. I'll do this. And then you're not in on the deal and you have no cards and you're like, damn, yeah. how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> it all seems so good when it started. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, I would, I would encourage you to, to check this one out if, uh, that style, you know, that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, probably, you know, that, that loud kind of in your face kind of game, but great for a party atmosphere. Um, certainly not the most strategy oriented game in the world, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I love the fact that, um, the game, the ending of the game is not guaranteed. Yes. You know, so it's not, okay, well, I know that there's this many deals, so I can hang out, wait and get this one and kick everybody because at some point in time it could end and, you have no control over that, so that's great. I also like watching the people play this game that are 
introverts. You know, I mean, <laughs> you really never hear from them. They're just kind of yeah. like, and then you give them this game. After about one or two rounds, the craziness begins, <laughs> and you start seeing and hearing stuff from those people. <laughs> They're elbowing yeah, out exactly. of the, everybody Where did that come the from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. I didn't think about that. It, it, it could brings, be a great way to bring people out of their shell, time. too. <laughs> Um, so that's the second game on the list. I'm the boss. Backshelf Spotlight. These games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. The Backshelf Spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So a little unfinished business from last week. We don't have the mystery connection this week. We did changed it up a little on you all and, and got an awesome amount of response. Great response. Um, so we asked last week, instead of the, the mystery connection, because we did the cheap-ass essentials um, on the back shelf, to let us know what you thought your favorite cheap-ass game was. And we got responses out the wazoo. Completely all over the board. <laughs> I, I was great. I was very happy to see that there were so many names submitted. Yes. You know, it wasn't just one game that everybody was talking about. So that's really cool. So we thought we would we'd go through a few of everybody's responses here, just kind of give you the highlights of, of what people people were thinking before we do the the big drawing for the the set of spiel dice here so um let's start with mossa stenstrom in cianudio finland sorry mossa if i mispronounced your hometown's <laughs> name but he writes in to say that his favorite cheap ass game is one he completely completely sucks at <laughs> which is fight ball it's a quick smart stressful speed card game he only plays against his kid brother, and he's too good to beat. <laughs> I'd encourage you, uh, Mossa has a great blog um, called imossa.net. We've got a link to it on the website. He's a, a war gamer, but he posts session reports with him and his brother and his buddies playing not just war games, but all just sorts of games. Cool. And he's all he's got really good analysis, and I would I would encourage you to check his, his blog out. But thanks, Mossa, for uh, your contribution. Awesome. We also got an email from Mike Holyoke. He says he thinks the cheap-ass game with the greatest name is Unexploded Cow, which I pretty much <laughs> have to agree with, with that. Yeah. But his actual favorite is the great Brain Robbie. He's a sucker for zombies, and it's definitely his favorite, so that's cool. <laughs> uh, Noah in Los Angeles writes, As a dejected Bears fan, it's very difficult for him to email right now, <laughs> but he can put the tragedy of the weekend behind him. That's, that's very big of you. Uh, Noah. <laughs> By far, he says his favorite cheap-ass game is Lord of the Fries. He just upgraded to the new color edition, and the new menus are great. You can even download readable versions of the menus from the cheap-ass website. Um, he'd also like to mention that he really enjoyed, enjoyed Diceland Space, which isn't technically a cheap-ass game because it was published under the James Ernest moniker, games moniker, but it's a really cool game for under $20, and it has a really nice uh, combination of strategy, luck, and dexterity. Um, so that's thanks for the tip on that. I haven't played that one. And it's on the list now. <laughs> exactly. So Ian in Victoria, Canada, voted for Lord of the Fries. He said his wife is a chef, and she loves it. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah. Just make sure she doesn't have any like pork craving, yeah, yeah, yeah. crazy bunnies uh, having her make deliveries, and she'll right. be okay. Exactly. <laughs> um, Mathen in Virginia votes for uh, Kill Doctor Lucky, an excellent Good choice. Vote. So Len in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, uh, he sends us a prioritized list of his top three cheap ass games, and they are 
Agora is number one, Captain's Treasure Boots is number two, and the very clever pipe game is number three. He goes on to say, Captain's Treasure Boots, this is a great little game. It's somewhat dice-driven, but there are enough choices left for each turn to keep it interesting. It has colorful, customizable board, and should definitely dig out a few Pirates of the Spanish main ships uh, <laughs> to play with. Um, if you like more strategic games, the Hip Pocket line of cheap-ass games are magnificent, really cheap, and even for cheap-ass games, they range from three to five bucks, and he owns them all. Um, his favorite of the two are, again, the, the very clever pipe game, which is a tile-laying connection type game. Um, he thinks the two-player game's better than the four-player game. Cool. Um, in Agora, this time the cards are laid out in, in an amazing variety of arrays, and the strategy is very intense. The cards simulate an ancient Greek marketplace, and you're trying to control the most profitable stalls. It's for two to four player. It works well with two, but it's best with more. Definitely, he says, uh, one worth checking out if, you, if you're not familiar with that one. And that one's actually one. I think I've played it once, yep. but it's so yep, long ago, I don't long have time. any memory of how cool that is. So It was fun. I remember it was neat. Um, back to you. So Michael in Eindhoven, the Netherlands, writes in, basically, he has four choices again, too. He says his favorite are the Big Cheese, Kill Dr. Lucky, Devil Bunny Needs a Ham, and Biting Off Heads. He says not necessarily, biting off heads, not necessarily a great game, but fun to play in his group. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they just like to bite off heads. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Maybe they have a thing for decapitation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Rachel in, uh, West Palm Beach also votes for Kill Dr. Lucky. Getting, getting a little hint on the Dr. Lucky vibe here. <laughs> um, and then Yoki Ertman writes in to say that his favorite cheap ass game, and he's shocked that we didn't list it, is Button Men. It's uh. a great, Dice game, and although it's a bit of an abstract game, the theme fits it very well. He owns a, a big collection of button men and loves the game. I I totally agree. I think it's a it's a fun, great game, and there's so many little tie-ins to all these other game and and other kinds of gamer subcultures mm -hmm. that 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 makes it really cool. I too. thought that game was so cool. Remember, I actually made my own. I have a That's full right. set of That's right imitation buttons. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that is that is. It almost encourages you to, to do that. Right, that, that exactly. Game. So we also got an email from uh, Paul Taylor. He writes, I have to say these games fall in and out of favor with me quickly. I think replayability can be a problem. Having said that, he said his current favorite game is Captain Park's Imaginary Polar Expedition. It recycles a bunch of old, cheap-ass mechanics and uses them in a different way. Also likes Get Out and Jacob Marley Esquire. <laughs> So that's kind of neat, and and I would agree some of these, you know, I mean, you're not going to play these every day, you know, but when they come out of the closet, they're fresh, and they're fun, and there's so many to choose from. Yeah, yeah. But, so that's kind of neat. <laughs> um, let's see, Randy Green writes, Parts Unknown is awesome. Spree is hilarious with the right group. Also, Tijuana Deathmatch, The Big Idea, and The Great Brain Robbery. Excellent choices, Randy. Okay, <laughs> now the response that everybody's been waiting for. <laughs> Crazy Dave in Wisconsin sends us another email. It goes something like this. What is wrong with the universe? After devoting most of December, I alone solved the mystery puzzle hidden in the Christmas show, only to discover that there was no prize. Then, twice in a row, I failed to win the coveted spiel dice due to a random event, a die roll. Now the opportunity arises to enter the contest by simply naming a game. No investigation, no sleepless nights, no notepads filled with near indecipherable script, not even a quick hack into the NSA computers for information. 
Simply name my favorite cheap-ass game. I've seen cheap-ass games, touched cheap-ass games, and even met James Ernest on a couple of occasions, but I have never played a cheap-ass game. Oh, Dave. Wow. Oh, it would be very easy to just fill in a name, but that would result in yet another nick in the fabric of the universe. I could have effortlessly scanned the games, the ratings, and player comments at BGG, probably in less time than it took me to compose this crap, <laughs> formulated a pithy comment and submitted my entry, but that would be wrong. So I am forced with this moral dilemma, to cheat or not to cheat. That is the question. Whether tis nobler... Oh, sorry, never mind. <laughs> I am boxed in between my obsession for winning the dice, the need to cheat in order to win, maintain, maintaining my self-respect, and avoiding yet another anything-to-win situation. <laughs> Given this position, I can only conclude that God hates me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute insanity yep. from Dave. The scary part <laughs> is that he went on to say that he's going to be traveling on vacation soon, and he's not going to be around to enter the next couple Connections games. So he went ahead and sent in Connections ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> not knowing the games. Not knowing anything. the games. So his first connection for our next episode is that Richard Borg, Alan Moon, and Mike Selinker all have designed a version of Risk. Which okay. True. Cool. And for the episode 24 or whatever it's going to be, both designers, in their youth, were known to go through all-night McDonald's drive throughs without wearing pants. <laughs> well, I'm sure those are the connections. Yeah. <laughs> God may hate you, uh, Dave, but, but we don't. So keep, keep the crazy coming. Thanks for the insanity. <laughs> um, last but not least, we've got, uh, let's see, Donald Dennis writes in again with Button Men. He calls it the, the ultimate crossover game. It's easy for companies to work with cheap ass and make new buttons that reflect their own game lines. But his his favorite game of all is uh, Lord of the Fries. So that kind of gives you a, a sense of the, the crazy <laughs> whirlwind that we got in response to the, the cheap-ass thanks for everybody who wrote in. Um, we thought before we make the official drawing, Dave is, is currently uh, messing with the, the hat full of names here. Um, Kill Dr. Lucky ended up being the game that most people called their favorite game with uh, Lord of the Fries being a, a very close second. We had a ton of... of third places of, of just one-offs, and it's cool to see how how wide the right. the swath was that Cheap-Ass cut, you know, as far as the different types of games that really appeal to different kinds of people. So without further ado, Dave, let's let's do the D. Let's pick a name and find out who's going to be the winner. Ooh. Easiest contest we'll ever have in the history of this Absolutely. field. This is <laughs> one full hat. Yep. <laughs> and okay. the winner is... Dun, dun, dun. Rum roll, please. If I can... Unfold the paper, <laughs> the post-it <laughs> post note that is sealed together, because, and it's Herb in North Carolina. All right, congratulations, Herb. Cool. We'll be contacting you very soon to get your address, and you will have a shiny new pair of spiel dice on their way to you. <laughs> cool. So enough silliness. Back to the, the very serious <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> backshelf spotlight. So uh, the connection is back in force this week. So remember, you need to, to be thinking about the connection between the two games we're going to discuss. The games for the backshelf spotlight this week are... Pirateer. And Pente. Several obvious connections right from the get-go. I think so, yep. So keep so, that in mind as we, we begin to discuss these games. So, um, so why don't we start off with Pirateer? Go, Sound go good? It. Go for it. So Pirateer was designed by Scott Peterson sometime in the mid-70s. The cool thing is when he first designed it, it was not called Pirateer. It was called Privateer. Hmm. 
And he actually manufactured over 8,000 of these in his garage until 1994 when it was finally published officially by the Mendocino Game Company. So that's, <laughs> that's a commitment. heck of a lot that of work. Exactly. Uh, Pirateers for two to four players, ages eight and up, retails for 20 bucks. You can find it for 15 online. Uh, the object in Pirateer is to use one of your ships to capture the treasure and then return it to your harbor. Way easier said than done. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. <laughs> um, I would define Pirateer as a backstabbing, roll-and-move, yet strategy game that borrows <laughs> its main mechanic, I think, from backgammon. And we'll kind of explain why that works a little bit later. The Pirateer game board is divided into squares, kind of like a checkerboard, except for there's all kinds of fancy graphics and islands and really neat stuff. Each player has their own harbor in the corner of the board. This is where their three ships start the game. In the center of the board is the dreaded Skull Island, and that's where the treasure is at the very beginning of the game. And then all the rest of spaces are kind of just open sea spaces with some exceptions. So on your turn, you're going to roll two dice. Now this is where the backgammon connection comes in because you have two options. You can, When you roll two dice, you can either add those two dice move one of your ships, the total of those two dice, or you can separate those dice and move one ship for each die. So, Just like backgammon. Exactly. So the, I think obviously, quite obviously he borrowed that, but it's a really cool little game. So the unique part is that you cannot move any one ship in more than one direction for each die. So if you were to roll a five and you wanted to use that to move one of your ships, you'd have to move that ship five spaces in a straight line. You can't make any turns. The only way to make a turn with one of your ships in one turn is to use two dice, you know, and then you can move like a five or a two. The other thing is almost all the movement is orthogonal. There is no diagonal movement allowed with some exceptions. <laughs> um, let's see. The very first thing you need to try and do is get your ships out to Skull Island, get the treasure. Obviously, only one person can do that because there's only one treasure. As soon as one person gets that treasure, that person's ship is now the target, and the insanity ensues very quickly because now everybody's trying to capture that ship and take the treasure. When you, when you capture a ship and take the treasure, it's removed from the board, so every time you get the treasure... All other 12 ships come running after you. You're going to start losing ships like crazy, which is just zany. Mm -hmm. um, other couple of things in this fun little roll and move game. The board wraps around. So if you move off one edge of the board on one side, you actually reappear on the <laughs> other side, which kind of allows for some neat strategy things. Um, the trade wins, I kind of hinted at those early. Those allow you to break the rules of moving orthogonal and let you move diagonal just on those certain spaces. And this game comes with a plethora of variants. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's at least eight or ten of them. Some of the ones that I, I think there's eleven of them. Some of the ones I'll mention is Nuketeer. <laughs> that's probably one of my favorites. <laughs> Everybody gets to have like one of their ships that's kind of like a kamikaze nuclear pirate <laughs> ship that any time you can just decide to go ahead and detonate it, roll a die, um, decide the blast pattern, and just <laughs> insanity. And then. I had to mention pieces of eight because mm -hmm. that allows you to actually put two sets of Pirateer together, have up to eight people play. Massive Pirateer Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I've had this game for a long time. I, I, I really enjoy it for the type of game it is. It and gets knocked as being like a little kid game. Right. And it does not deserve that. that no. Not that there's anything wrong, wrong with little kid games. No. I'm not saying that at all. But I don't think that it... 
it definitely has an element of strategy to it and isn't just, oh God, if I'm not, if I'm not eight, this game is going to be boring kind of right, connotation exactly. that, that you might think of with this game. It's, it is simple, but I mean, backgammon is simple too. And, yeah, yeah. and it's a proven classic, you yeah. know, of all time. And you can't help yourself, but, you know, to bandy about the pirate jargon. I mean, yeah. it just, you know, that along with the funness of the game, it's just really cool. And you never know. I mean, you can run out. Run out, grab the treasure, and I think that's the funnest part. The treasure changes hands like ten times in a game. Mm-hmm. And I, if I didn't mention it, the harbor that you're trying to drag the treasure back to is not exactly very easy to get to. They're kind of tucked They're back. They're tucked back in in this single file rank of spaces, and you have to get to this in space by exact count, and that's hard. So once you head down to do that, you kind of pin yourself in and just say, hey, okay, come on over, take the treasure, because yeah, I yeah. can't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely uh, would encourage uh, you, if you like backgammon of any of any dice-based game like that, that this would be one to, to dust off if you haven't gotten it out exactly. for a while and check it out or, or check it out for the first time. Uh, Pirateer, awesome game. <laughs> So second, we have Pente, uh, long-time classic, uh, 1979. It was originally published. Uh, Gary Gabriel and Tom Bronlick were the designers. Parker Brothers, Decipher, Pente Games. It's been out in a myriad of different published forms. Um, it's a two-player game. It's about a 30-minute game. So Pente uh, is an abstract strategy game. You're going to be placing glass markers on intersections of a 19-by-19 19 19 grid, just the same as the classic game Go. Um, the object of the game is to get five of your own markers in a row or capture five of your opponent's pieces. Uh, the first to do either one wins the game. Capturing is going to take place when exactly two pieces are, of your opponent's are sandwiched between pieces of the opposite color. There are tons of variations to this game. There, there are rules for mo- even multiple players that you could make it a three or four player game for greater challenge or complexity. But just the beautiful simplicity, it's sort of go light. Right. It, this is, it would be an awesome way to introduce someone if you're interested in learning go, learn Pente first, get the hang of that, and then it's, it's just a step up to learn go from there. Um, I found out a fun little interesting bits of trivia just about Pente ah, that I thought I'd throw cool. in here. So Pente, it was invented while Gary Gabriel was working as a dishwasher at the Hideaway Pizzeria <laughs> in Stillwater, Oklahoma. <laughs> now, based on the success of the Pente game, Gabriel is the head of a group of Hideaway Pizzas uh, that have opened all sorts of pizza places all over Oklahoma, which I thought, you know... <laughs> Pente and pizza, they yeah. kind of go hand in hand. Um, during the 80s, there was an all-glass board that was made available through a manufacturer in Indiana as a limited edition and is considered like one of the prize. They're very limited and hard to find, but there was a glass Pente version wow. that uh, was made right here in Indiana, which I thought was sweet. an interesting little bit of trivia. That is, that's very cool. Uh, but definitely, uh, it's just so elegantly simple. I mean, it's basically taking the best aspects of Go and eliminating you know, some of the higher strategy. I mean, right. you could say, if you wanted to be uh, negative about it, you could say it's a dumbed-down version of Go, but I, I I would disagree with that. I agree with you. What makes it great is the exact opposite of that. Is that it is a great introduction to you know, something like Go. It's Go with training wheels, right? Exactly, <laughs> and and it's just and it stands on its own. It is a good game in its own right, and if you like it, then you can always step up to right Go from there. So, and like you said, there are so many variations that 
start it down a path that is much different than Go. So it's got a lot going for it. Mm-hmm. A lot going for it. <laughs> Sorry <you>. about that. <laughs> <laughs> so again, remember there are two connections, or there is a connection between Go. <laughs> you got me going. You got me going now. Stop. Between Pente and Pirateer, we want to hear what you think this mystery connection is. Email us at Stephen at thespiel.net. Or Dave at thespiel.net. And, and hopefully you'll get our mystery connection. But remember, if you can't get our mystery connection, the most creative or what we think is the best connection is going to win this pair of Spiel dice in the next episode. So, sweet. Let us know what you think. Truckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components, or a game with really unique components. Now we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. So my turn on goober this week. Uh, Dave tends to go for the giant amounts of stuff with the goober. I tend to like the the goober that's just plain freaking weird goober. And this one, this one pretty much takes the definitely takes qualifies. the cake. So uh, truckloads of goober this week is Neolithobum. Uh, it was published in 1991. Harald Bills is the designer. Uh, Heidelberger Spieleverlag is the uh, publisher. Two to six players plays in about forty minutes. Um, I don't. It's currently not in print any longer, but you can find copies. We both found our copies at uh, Gen Con yep. at the Gen Con auction. But I know I've seen copies out there, so if you look hard, you can find it. Um, so I have to read this little bit of flavor <laughs> flavor text about the game before we get started because it it'll just give you a hint about what the game is about before I tell you what the goober is in the game. So long ago, it happened that the great god Prut suffered such gastric and intestinal troubles that there was a great noise, a rumble of thunder in the skies. The skies darkened, and the great oak was struck by lightning. So, players are trying to build a monument in honor of the great Prute. The scheme is simple, just pile up big stones. The ritual, however, may be complicated when, for example, you must put your stone with your left hand put your stone on the altar after your left hand passing under your right leg with your nose on the table with your neighbor's glasses on your head and of course your stones can't fall from the the tree (laughs) altar so this is a game about cavemen stacking rocks on a big pile of wood in the middle of a board that sits at the middle of the table I (laughs) and I'm not lying that's exactly what this game (laughs) Entails exactly. <laughs> so you can pretty much say that Neolithobum is all that and a bag of rocks. <laughs> yes, real rocks. The 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 game is a goober game for its unique components, which include a tree stump altar, which is actually it looks like a tree branch that's just been sort of sliced off it, it is. and sanded. I mean, it doesn't look like some polished piece of wood. It just looks like a freaking tree branch, looks if like you they ask just me. Went out back, hacked it off, and threw it in the box. <laughs> uh, a bag of river rocks, sized small, medium, and large, which makes the game quite heavy, I can attest <laughs> to. Um, a bag of food counters, six cavemen activity boards with goofy illustrations of cavemen, 
event cards with three levels of difficulty, and a set of egg-shaped pointers that are used to determine what action that your caveman is going to take on his given turn. Now, we're not going to go into a huge <laughs> amount of de detail, because I'm sure this is going to come back on the list proper at some point in time, or the back shelf. But the basic element, it's a stacking game, not unlike a ball sack Noir or even Jenga, you know, which everybody and his brother knows about. But the basic essence of the game is those little egg-shaped pointers have a small, medium, and large rock choice, or you can try to mess with other people choice, or the currency in the game is the food. The basic essence of the game is you're trying to build this little puzzle of a bear skull on your thing, and you're doing that. You, you get to draw from the bear skull bag by placing rocks on the altar without them falling. The real wackiness in the game comes in you're, if you do decide to pick a small, medium, or large rock from the pile and try to put it on there. If someone else has chosen to mess with you, then you have to draw one of these event cards that might say something like, you can only pick up the rock with your two pinkies. And then some of them might say you have to draw an event card and a second one. So it might be two pinkies and your nose has to be flat on the table. Or you have to do it standing on one leg. It is just it's wacky. Crazy. I mean, this must be the episode about games with mayhem just, because yeah. this with <laughs> exactly. this and I'm the boss would be a, an awesome combo yeah. for a, a light kind of party night game. But... How many games are you going to get where the main component of the game is just a giant bag, bag literally, of rocks? Exactly. <laughs> um, that has to be a first on the goober. Just a bag of rocks, baby. Yep. <laughs> so uh, check out Neolithobum and uh, get rocking. The uh. Game Somalier, or Right Game, Right Crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, the Game Sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week, one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right, the honor, to be called the Game Sommelier. So Dave, to remind you of your, your evil challenge this oh, week, you man. can't blame me totally for this one. Tim Coffley in Seattle uh, wrote in with this challenge. You need to find five games for an intimate weekend with your partner, games that have a romantic theme or connection, and games that would easily fit in your overnight bag for your, your romantic getaway weekend. So... Let's see what, let's see what you came up with. Tim, you are a sick, sick man. <laughs> this was... Probably the hardest stupid challenge that I that I've ever had. So I, I decided to start off and actually go down the path of actually picking romantic games for just you and your partner. I quickly found out that no matter what the name is, no matter what how they're marketed, they're all the same game. <laughs> but the names are worth mentioning. So before I get to my five picks. I do have five other games that you should be aware of and maybe look for. Those five games are Love Dice, Bathtub Love, <laughs> Kinky Bingo, Nice, 52 Weeks of Naughty Nights, <laughs> and Four Playing Cards. Oh, nice. <laughs> All these games can be found on your friendly neighborhood uh, internet, <laughs> anywhere from 5 to $25. They all kind of have the same premise, and all will probably require edible underwear and a pool table. <laughs> <laughs> 
We need to have the bow, bow, bow in the background while you're uh, reading these off, I think. So if you really needed five romantic games, there they are. I'm just going to assume that I got five thumbs up. (laughs) Now, I have picked five other games that kind of are themed around romance or couples or other silly weirdness or relationships. So we'll go with there. I'm going to start off with my first one, Dirty Minds. It's for two to six players, unfortunately no designer, published by TDC Games. It's a party-style game that kind of has everybody thinking naughty about things that, in fact, are not naughty. (laughs) It's just a goofy, fun little party game. Um, I think, basically, you have to be the first one to spell the word dirty Mm. with, with... the only way you can get it is to collect letter cards by guessing the correct answer. We won't go into some of the way that they make you think of dirty things. But <laughs> So that's my first pick, just kind of like a nice, dirty weekend. And it comes in a, very, a fairly small box, so mm. you can pack that away with you. Yeah, my only question is, does it, would it scale down to two players? If that you just had... actually is for two players. It really, oh, okay. Yeah, it really, it's, you can play with well, three you or party, four. so you confused me. I'm there. sorry, it's for two to six players. Okay. It's thought of as a party game, but you can but you... actually play with two people. Okay, that sounds like someone who's played it himself. No, I would never play that. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't you own it? No. <laughs> oh, man. We have I, to put that I, on the list. I then. own some games that can belong on this list, but we're not going to talk about those games. <laughs> <laughs> That's for a different podcast. Yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, if, if it's definitely a two-player game, then I'll have to give you a thumb up. I was ready to go down on that one for sure, uh, but... <laughs> stop. Stop. <laughs> okay, number two. There are going to be some thumbs going in the wrong direction on these, but this was just fun. So the second one I picked was a classic card game called Hearts. Just because of Hearts makes you think of Valentine's and Hearts and lovey-dovey, even though it has nothing to do with romantic crap. Hearts is for three to seven, that's right, not for two, but it is a classic trick-taking game where you can, you have to avoid taking hearts or you can shoot the moon and try and get all the hearts. Everybody knows Hearts, I just picked it because it's called Hearts. <laughs> Okay, well, you got to get the thumbs down just because you can't be played with two. But in theme-wise, I think you get away with that because Tim even mentioned yeah, he uh, said, he said hearts or roses or that right. that was acceptable. So theme-wise, you did a good job, but <clears throat> thumbs down Damn. on the non-player. Okay, now we're going to kind of do the same thing, but what that I think is going to be a thumbs up. I'm going with War of the Roses or Rosenkoning, yeah. which is definitely a two-player game. It uh, kind of mimics the famous battle between the Lancaster and York family. It's a game that was designed by Dirk Hinn. We all know him of Alhambra fame. Mm. Published by Cosmos in 1999. It's an abstract strategy game, but it's fairly simplistic. Little crown marker. You're trying to put all your little markers in contiguous regions and score points. But once again, I picked it because it had roses in it. <laughs> I, I'll let that one slide. I think that's, you know, you you fit the criteria, and it is it is a good game. And, you know, couples can have strife. Yeah, you know. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can see I was obviously drinking tequila while I made <laughs> <Yeah>. this list. <laughs> but, okay. Next on the list, Relationship Tightrope. 
Thematically, I think fits in really cool. Designed by Rainer Kenichia, published by Uber Play in 2004. Once again, unfortunately, three to five players. All these are very small little packages, so they at least fit into that, <laughs> that part of the challenge. <laughs> but this is kind of a really neat little small auction game, you know, an, in package. You got these little stupid pink and blue sticks, and everybody's trying to bid on these um, cards that kind of represent situations that arise in, you know, in your relationships, but it's a balance issue. So you have to pit, you have to win as many men things as you do women things. Yeah. So it actually is a really cool game. And I just picked it once again because of the relationship aspect. And yeah, I, that's a game that suffers from just a dippy theme. Oh, I mean, if they horrible. had themed this differently, I think this game could have been really, really popular and really interesting. And, and that might be so dippy. That might be just our fault because I know the original German version was just called Tightrope. Yeah, and I think you that know, would have been like walking a t you know fine line between you know yeah. male and female, you know. But who knows? But again, <laughs> down can't be played with two people. I'm merciless this week. <laughs> I came into this knowing that the thumbs were gonna fly, baby. <laughs> and <laughs> you're gonna really kill me for this. I had to pick the game. Sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> because you know, in any relationship, all you ever I spend most of my time saying I'm sorry <laughs> about something. <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. So, I mean, especially, you know, love means never having to say you're sorry. Oh, man. The, sorry. The... Sorry. No, really, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sorry. Okay. Anyway, this was published by Parker Brothers. Everybody knows this <laughs> dorky little game that's kind of like uh, Parcheesi. It's a race game. Two to four players. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Oh boy, where do you go with such a sorry pick as that, man? That's <laughs> stop it. Sad. Stop, <laughs> man. So, so you can see, I kind of just, I would just have <laughs> left. I had no idea what to do with picking romantic games. I really am married, and I'm quasi romantic. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> Roberta might uh, yeah, might be able to weigh in on in yeah. your favor on that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna withhold judgment and let Tim be the final <laughs> arbiter. He'll be like, "What the hell were you thinking?" <laughs> so, Tim, you're you're gonna have to write in and let us know what you think, and and we'll we'll count your thumbs as as well as mine, no matter where they end up. Yeah. I may need <laughs> all the thumbs to combine for just a couple. <laughs> but okay, so that leads us to our new challenge, Whoa. which was also sent in by a listener, Jeff Myers from New Mexico, would like. You to find five games for a Star Wars themed party. Yeah, that's a good idea. Which I think that'll be very fun. There's certainly a plethora of Star Wars games out there. Yeah, yeah. So narrowing it down to five might actually be tough. Yeah. Does he say like what size the party is, or is it like a birthday party, or it's just a Star Wars no, party? No, yeah, just a Star Wars themed party. Okay. Hmm. Kind of see what you can find. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Th you ever thought of sorry? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's a Star Wars version of I'm, sorry. I'm sure there is. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not going to let you live that one down for a while. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I had to pick that. Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. So as usual, we had some great feedback from 
our listeners. Um, let's start with we had some corrections on Cleopatra and cool. some and some praise for our coverage of Cleopatra and the Society of Architects. So start with the praise and then go to the <laughs> corrections. Herb in North Carolina, uh, our winner cool. this time, uh, writes in to say, "I was having a listen." Um, a fourth listen through to episode 22 earlier today and wanted to thank you for the excellent run through of Cleopatra and the Society of Architects. Even after four times, your discussion of the game remained interesting and each time through, I heard a bit that I had somehow missed before. This is a game I have not played and had some reservations about. Your discussion of the game helped me understand the game much better. Well, thanks. Awesome. That's, that's cool. That's the upside of trying to encapsulate it. If you do a good job, it, right, can, exactly. it can really make a game hopefully makes sense to people who are listening. That's very cool. The downside is we can also forget a couple details, and we did in, in the case of Cleopatra, so sorry, Herb, if we... <laughs> I don't think this will change your mind about the game at all, but we did screw up a, a couple um, ones, so I think you've got one um, there from John. Oh, yeah, John um, Tessier, or or Tessier, I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. Sorry about that. Um, he wanted to let us know that we mentioned several times that we weren't actually allowed to look in our little pyramids to check the quantity of corruption tokens unless there was that auction that came up with the onk dice. And, in fact, that's untrue. You can actually look at your corruption tokens any time that you want throughout the game. So that's... The- the point is to not, you can't see what the other people have. Right, exactly. Just, so that's much different than we said it, so we apologize yeah, for that. That was a goof <laughs> on my part, so my bad. Um, we also, Tim in Canal Fulton, Ohio, uh, writes in to say that we missed one of the scoring options as well. Ah. It was pretty minor, but when placing the Tetris tiles, the mosaic tiles in the garden, right. um, you also get extra points for having them next to the next wall. Next to the wall. And those. I neglected to mention that, yep. so that's that's definitely... I think that was next to the walls that had the wall sections built there. Correct. I, I do remember Correct. that. Correct, and I just spaced mentioning that. So two little corrections. We do our best with the rules, but it's good that we have listeners who keep us honest and, exactly. and on the straight and narrow because we certainly intend to be as accurate as, we, as humanly possible. So if you spot us goofing up, please send us email at steven at thespiel.net. Or steven at thespiel.net. Oh, no, I mean Dave at thespiel.net. And be sure to include um, your name and where you're from and uh, a pronunciation guide to your name if there's some funky pronunciation that we might right. screw up it because does help we will. Yeah, if it <laughs> if, can be screwed if left up. left our own devices, we will <laughs> screw it up. I think you all have learned that by now. <laughs> um, but we totally appreciate, you know, whatever input, good, bad, or indifferent, and it's good that you're keeping us honest. <laughs> exactly. So we also have an email uh, from Michael Black. If you'll remember, um, he was a gentleman that offered to be our roving reporter at the New York Toy Fair because we were all psyched about seeing the new version of Talisman. Well, he went to the New York to- Toy Fair, and unfortunately, Games Workshop was not at the convention. So that's totally a bummer. We appreciate the effort, Michael. Yeah, <laughs> thank ho- you. Hopefully, uh, we'll get some info from other sources down the line. I'm sure as it gets closer to time, though, we'll start hearing more and more about it, and we're we're waiting with bated breaths. But thanks, thanks for the effort. Um, Dana, uh, Danny in North Carolina writes, first off, I wanted to let you know that uh, she likes the new site design. It's definitely easy on the eyes. Thank cool. you. Um, in episode 22, we mentioned that the cheap-ass game Renfield is out of print. Uh, what we forgot to mention is that it's still available um, as a print-and-play game from the cheap-ass website. 
Um, she says, I'm a pulp gamer on a strict budget, so I'm always on the lookout for these type of games. So she just thought she'd mention it and says, thanks for another great show. Well, thanks, yeah. Danny. That was just a complete oversight on our part right. to mention that Renfield is totally available through Cheapass, and you can't beat that price yeah. for such an excellent game. It's just a great, great game, and you can't beat free. Yeah, free is good. <laughs> so we got an email from uh, John in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Wanted to let us drop us a quick note, um, thanking us for putting on such a great show. He said he was actually tipped off about our podcast by Doug Garrett of Garrett's Games and Geekiness. And he's been a regular listener ever since. Thank so you. that's very cool. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. And he also wants to let us know, um, he said he really enjoyed the Cheap Ass Essential thing, and he said we had some great recommendations, but we missed uh, what he considers a real gem, and that's Light Speed. It was a 2003 release from James Ernest and Tom Jolly, and it was part of the Hip Pocket line of games. Um, he went on to tell us a little something about the game, and it does sound pretty cool. It's a lightning-fast card game of space combat about identical teams of spaceships dropping out of hyperspace to do battle over an extremely important asteroid. Each spaceship is equipped with one to four lasers, and the lasers have three different strengths. And then he describes that everybody plays simultaneously. You're drawing and playing your ship cards as fast as you can, trying to lay them in the best positions. And then finally, at the end, you're trying to figure out where the hell all those lasers were pointing to get your points. <laughs> so that sounds pretty cool. I, I haven't tried that one. For a hip pocket, those hip pocket games just continually impress me with how deep they are for being just such simple two, three buck games. Like right. Really some, Comes some out, gems in there. There are think. some neat things. <laughs> So lastly, we have uh, Joseph Peterson writes in to give us an alternate sommelier list for the meaty games under $10. Um, so he writes and says, I was pretty disappointed with the game sommelier last episode. Meaty games that cost Wait till I hear this episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perhaps we set the bar too high, Joseph. <laughs> um, he says that... Um, uh, he's amazed that Battleground Fantasy Warfare wasn't on our list. It plays fine with a single deck. Um, and what about Fairy Tale for the RPG fans? Tichu, Bang, Gang of Four are three good card games too. The list of possible games is huge. Um, anyway, I'm a huge abstract strategy fan, and you can get a ton of games that cost less than $10, so that just seemed too easy to, to him. In fact, to make it a real challenge, he thought he'd pull out five meaty games for his collection that totaled ten dollars total. So he changes up the challenge a little bit, but I like uh -huh. what I like what he did with it. And to make it more difficult, I decided that he couldn't use any play, print and play, or thrift store find games, which really did make it tough. Well, I, I could see why that would yeah. definitely make it a little more of a challenge. Um, so here's what he found. Um, the thrift store finds would have made it trivially easy. He found Cribbage for two ninety five, uh, Are You Werewolf for two eighty from Thought Hammer, Chess for a dollar from the dollar <laughs> store, uh, Abande from for a dollar. Um, I don't know that I even know that game at all. I am not familiar with that. Um, and he's, he goes on to say that even leaves two dollars and twenty five cents for a bag of chips. <laughs> Sweet. Um, so that's you know. I, I like that he put a lot of effort into to coming up with an alternate to right. the list. Cool. Um, you know, he said that, that there are just so so many different com combinations that he felt like he his list was better. Well, I, more power to you. I think that that's a perfectly great great yeah. list, Joseph. Absolutely. And I would be happy with those five choices as well. I'm that being said, I'm still willing to stand by my five. I don't see. I don't think that my five were 
trivial in any way. I don't. I don't. No, I didn't I, find them. Yeah, I think your five were. I great. thought they fit the the definition. And I of think meeting. after the challenge, we even mentioned that the the list was so huge of games to pull from that we were going to revisit this. Yeah, which you know, so we completely I, agree with him. I, I, mean, I think yeah, he's he's sensing that vibe too that it's really a good idea to be able to look for these cheap games that, cool. that have that kind of meat to them so we appreciate we we love disagreement we, <laughs> we are not the final arbiters of anything here so let us know if you disagree with us and and write us you know anytime at steven at the spiel.net or dave at the spiel.net and i think i think we've reached the end here um, we've, we've had a good mailbag segment and a good show overall. Thanks everybody to, for listening. Stay tuned in a couple weeks for episode 24. We'll be back in a couple weeks. So without further ado, I'm Stephen Conway. And I'm David Colson. So remember, whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You just, just have, have to play. play.